You're listening to Two for Tea, a podcast produced in association with Ario Magazine. I'm your host, Iona Italia. This is a podcast about politics, society, science, and art. I hope to provide a forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum and counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria. The podcast is entirely listener-supported. For early access to episodes, support us at patreon.com slash ario, A-R-E-O, or patreon.com slash tea. Welcome to the conversation. Hello, everyone. My guest this week is author Nev March. Um, Nev has a background in business analysis, but she is now a full-time novelist and she teaches creative writing at Rutgers University. Uh, she is, this is Nev's second visit to the podcast. Um, I had her on a little while ago to talk about her first uh, novel, Murder in Old Bombay, which was, um, I think probably my favorite work of fiction that I wrote, that I read that year. And, uh, she has, um, now published a sequel, Peril at the Exposition. Um, and I gather a third, um, novel in the series is also coming out, uh, in autumn of next year, of this coming year, 2023. I think it might be 2023 by the time you are listening to this. Welcome back, Nev. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, such a pleasure to be here. Uh, the pleasure is all mine. I um, I absolutely loved this second novel. Um, let's see, maybe the best place to start is um, the novel is set, set uh, during Chicago's World's Fair in 18, wait, what was the date? 1893, Sure. So this novel came out of a, a chapter that was originally intended to be <clears throat> the epilogue. Diana, uh, when I was writing the first book, I don't think she got her full say. And therefore, she kept talking to me. This, As a novelist, it's an strange experience with newer characters keep insisting there's something they have to say. Um, you have to try and listen to them. So I first wrote this very long epilogue and then realized there's no way this is a whole separate book. So um, that was the genesis of the idea of the novel. It's actually the first two chapters of Peril at the Exposition came from that epilogue. But the setting really struck me when I went to Toronto in um, 2000. Uh, I think it was 19, there was a Parliament of World Religions, the seventh one, and realized that the first parliament was actually in Chicago in 1893. And what an event. So as I began to research it and learned more about it, I realized that the World's Conference of 
Anarchist was held in Chicago that very same summer. And to my horror, I learned that about 30 million people had visited Chicago through that six-month period. Uh, there were a half a million people in the fair at any given time, uh, 400,000, 500,000 on peak days. And I just uh, had this horror of, oh, my God, what could have happened? So that's irresistible to a writer to have those two major events juxtaposed at the same place, the same time, and right up against each other. And what a way to point out the vast differences in point of view. Uh, also, as I was writing this novel, it was in 2021, and uh, there was just so much happening in the States uh, politically. Um, there was this huge divide in attitudes and opinions. Our blue-red divide just got enormous. Uh, you couldn't even talk to people from the other side because you had no common ground. And I realized that the genesis of all of that completely opposing points of view really started there at the fair where you had, in those days, it was called the labor capital divide, really speaking, and decided that some of the secondary characters in the book could elucidate that point of view uh, to to dramatize what it was like to be on one side or the other. And so that's how the book took shape. Mm. Do you think that it's... Um, so both your books, I've noticed this one and Murder in Old Bombay um, tackle, uh, they're quite, they're both very rather panoramic um, in their, in their focus. It's a very kind of wide sweep of society that you look at. Um, and in that sense, it, they remind, they rather remind me of the novels of um, Charles Dickens and, and Dickens contemporary Wilkie Collins. So they, they have a kind of classic Victorian triple decker feel to them. And you do thematize a lot of sort of social and political issues. Um, or rather you don't, you, you, um, they come up naturally as a result of the kinds of topics that you are handling and the kind of situations that your characters find themselves in. Do you, is there, um, are there advantages, do you think, um, to, framing those stories as mystery novels. So both of them are uh, basically um, murder mystery novels, strongly influenced by um, Arthur Conan Doyle's Sherlock Holmes series. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. There are enormous advantages. So I aim to tell a good tale, right? I just want to have the reader so absorbed in what's going on and all the little details that puzzle my detectives and so on and just have them go readers go along for a ride and have a wonderful ride but the fact is that we live in a complex world and part of what my job as a writer is uh, is to try and peel back and explain a few things to the reader as they go along to the to the sleuth as they discover them uh, these are aha's, insights, uh, readers may or may not agree, but uh, I think the point I'm trying to make is that sometimes you don't need a mass murdering serial killer to get the drama 
uh, of real life. Real life is plenty dramatic anyway, because people have vastly different points of view. And some of them, many of them are good people, intrinsically good people. But because of their positions and their beliefs, they are set in opposition to each other. And that can end in tragedy. It can end in heartbreak. It can end in them betraying their own essential principles. And some of these things are, uh, to me, riveting. Uh, Not always pleasant. Sometimes they are painful to write. But that is the point, to not shy away. So I do like to have a very close camera. If you, um, you know, if I could borrow the director's, um, uh, you know, movie-going terminology for a second, a very close camera, so you are very close to the protagonist, but they're experiencing things that are very vast. And I think that lends itself to complexity and complications and uh, sometimes um, too large cast of characters, (laughs) but they are needed because they are also vastly different and they each have a part to play. So thank you for mentioning Dickens, one of my favorite writers. Uh, There's so many lovely series made and movies made also that make Dickens accessible, but there's nothing like reading his actual descriptions of characters and so on. Just delightful. So thank you so much. That is such a compliment, Diana. You're welcome. I think you might enjoy, so my old PhD supervisor, John Mullen, Mm -hmm. who has also been a guest on this podcast, um, has written a book called The Artful Dickens, um, about Dickens's literary craft. And uh, I think you'd enjoy that. Um, He came on the podcast, actually, to talk about his book on Jane Austen. Ah. But uh, just a personal recommendation for you if you're not familiar with it. Thank you. I am not, and I look forward to reading that. Yeah. So um, I'm. Um, I want to read. Uh, uh, I'll probably read a couple of shorter passages from the novel as we go along. But I was looking for a passage that would give people a little bit of a flavor of the novel, and it's not easy actually to find a. Um, to find a descriptive passage because this is quite a fast a fast paced um novel that is is uh quite plot centric i would say so there are not a lot of moments that your your descriptions of things are very detailed but they are those descriptions are usually embedded within um something that is moving the plot forward it's a that's another way in which this novel in particular, even more than, actually more so than Murder in Old Bombay, has this Victorian feel to me, i.e. it reads, it has a lot of short-ish chapters of roughly the same length, um, which have a kind of little self-contained episodic installment, uh, not episodic, the opposite of episodic, have this kind of feeling of installments in a story. I don't know if you had that model in your mind at all as you were writing, but it reminded me very much of the way in which um, Dickens and Wilkie Collins and George Eliot's novels were serialized for appearance in magazines. I mean, this novel would have been perfect as a serialization in a Victorian magazine. 
That's wonderful. Yes, that's very much the intention. So I try in many different ways to give the feeling of the time. So, for example, in modern old Bombay, Captain Jim is very formal in his language. He's a Victorian male. He's a British officer brought up in the you know Indian British Indian Army, literally grew up in the army. So he has a very formal way of um, approaching things and, and even framing them. Um, that's deliberate. The style that I thought he would use in, in his uh, language was, was definitely from that time. And it is very Holmesian in that sense as well. Uh, Diana had a slightly different voice. And again, even though it's, she's still a product of the times, uh, she is younger, more impatient, um, less thoughtful, I want to say, a little bit more impulsive. And so a lot of the characterization of things, because we are so much in her point of view in the second book in Peril at the Exposition, has that feel. It's still Victorian. It's got this, you know, chapter by chapter nature. Uh, now I went here and this is what I found. Now I went there and that is what I found. So it's a little bit of that following this poor girl around as she blunders through, especially in the first half. She blunders her way around because she is a new immigrant. She's 22 years old. Her husband is missing uh, and he's a detective and she decides she has to go after him. Uh, but she takes all her money. She takes her clothes. She takes her jewelry. Uh, she is going to be as equipped as she can possibly be in this new world. So I just thought that was delicious. And the fact that she comes across all these people and tries to recruit some of them, and then they all have their own devious reasons for joining her. Oh, that just made this such a riot to write. <laughs> I'm going to read a, um, a, a little passage to give people a flavor of the prose. Um, so this is a um, a description of a fire. Um, fire. The first warning was a smell, acrid like burning rubber, wood smoke, and something else, the sharp pungency of chemicals. Then I saw a glow in the sky. Behind the train station, a squat tower with a conical top loomed above the adjacent buildings. It smouldered as though the blaze wore a hat of embers. What's that? I asked, forgetting to lower my voice. Cold storage building, said a man to my right. Damned electric, it's deadly. Others took up this chant, heaping abuse upon the new electric. Soon the ringing clamour of fire engines filled the air. An awful clanging announced three wagons pulled by horses. I glanced around, panic prickling as I realised there were too many people in the street. How could they get through? Men pushed and thrust against each other. A group leapt from the water wagons to unravel hoses. When many hands reached to help, they hollered, Give us room! Step back! Now it would be all right, I thought, breathing steadily. I glanced about for Abigail, but she wasn't nearby. I peered this way and that. She had disappeared. Flames lit up the block, making the street brighter than day. Heat radiated, warming my face. The crowd moved, shoving me with its momentum as I scanned their fearful faces. Resisting the press of bodies, I tried to retreat, but it was no good. I was hemmed in. Rivulets of sweat ran down my forehead, plastering my shirt to my back. As one, the group moved. 
Some men tried to climb a side wall, but it proved too tall. Others took turns at the pumps or hauled hoses from the wagons, pulling them further. Searching for Abigail's narrow shoulders, I elbowed my way from one group to another, embers scattered from under that hat-like roof where the firemen climbed. That's a water tower, isn't it? I asked a boy nearby. Won't they be safe? He shook his head. Cold storage. That's electric for the ice rink, making ice for folks to skate on. Said they could do it even in summer. Look, he pointed, arm outstretched. Something moved on the rim, above the smouldering wall. A man, another, and more. A dozen men clambered onto the rim encircling the structure, high above us but distant now, since we'd retreated a whole block to avoid being singed. A shout went up. Get a ladder to them! Efforts were made, but each one failed. No ladder could reach that high. If the heat so far away burned my cheeks, what of those poor fellows? I shuddered to think of their skin roasting from the blaze. Where are the firemen, I cried. The boy's face contorted. That's them on the roof. Cut off by the fire, they were stranded on the rim. Men groaned or crossed themselves as the firemen's plight became apparent. A hush killed all discussion. Some took off their hats and held them to their breast. Smoke billowed as the wind turned, choking us, driving us back, our eyes stinging. When I could see again, I searched for movement against the glowing roof. The crowd stood still like mourners at a gravesite. Faces gleamed with sweat. Or were they tears? On the rim, firemen shook hands, clapping each other on the shoulder, saying their farewells. A man neared me, prayed in a choked voice. Another sobbed, his body shaking. One by one, the men on the rim leapt from the parapet to their deaths. That stark image seared into my mind, firemen standing on the blazing rim. Despite the heat, a shiver worked over my shoulders and down my back. There was nothing we could do. Over the next hour, the group thinned. Eyes smarting, I walked down an unfamiliar street then retraced my steps and tried another. This took me to the waterfront, so I turned back again. I could not be lost, not today. Finally, I neared the tavern. There stood Abigail, dishevelled and sooty, moustache askew, pale eyes shocked. A red glow in the sky cast a strange light over the city as we returned to the Oriental in silence. Around us, embers floated like fireflies. In Bombay, each holy day and birthday was marked by a family visit to the Zoroastrian fire temple. There, an ancient fire glimmered upon a great urn banked with logs of sandalwood. Tended with devotion amid whispered prayers, that flame had lived a thousand years, ever since my Persian ancestors sought refuge in India. Tonight, the roaring flames were a beast unleashed. Um... I reading that I was very um reminded of the scenes uh after nine eleven with the people jumping from the towers. Um and it's it's quite a stark reminder since in much of the book you um uh in much of the book you um is written from a point of kind of empathy with the plight of the uh the um workmen the exploit the exploited with the plight of exploited workmen and um 
you write about the the attractions of the anarchist movement um and you write a lot about poverty and um the workers own situation but the book is also very much about terrorism and it's about an attempt to prevent a major terrorist act so this little fire is a kind of foretaste of worse po- possibly worse things to come yes absolutely you have hit the nail on the head uh it is very much a uh, a taste of uh, in a way shocking diana to uh, awareness of what could happen and uh in propelling her on to ever more dangerous things actually because of that uh, stark image um you know to see that firsthand um for many people 911 will never you know will never go away that we can't unsee that that horror uh and and it's a uh, it's a reminder that one has to be active in defense of uh what's good and and right and uh protect um you know what we value uh, our way of life and our our um freedoms and that we cannot take those for granted so in, in many ways Diana's experiencing that in a, a perhaps smaller scale but that did happen that fire did actually happen um so i have about six events in the book uh, in fact i would say all the peculiar events in the book really did happen and some of them are unexplained um to this date and i love to in my historical fiction bring real events and try to explain why they might have happened the way they did i sometimes take a little liberty with the time of when they happened but i try to draw that thread through them it is very much about the plight of poor workers uh in Europe at that time and this is also in Chicago very much uh, an industrial uh, nightmare you know before you had decent labor laws or uh, any of them were really um enforced but look at Qatar today look at the plight of Nepalese workers who um are not different from what um England and Europe and Chicago and the rest of America suffered in the late 1800s um they are very much in the same uh situation and i i would even propose that many workers in America today that are in corporations that do not have to follow um the law because they are too big that many of those workers are in that situation today when you work um for uh, minimum wage and can barely you know pay your rent or find food um there's something wrong when that when when a person is doing honest hard work and is not able to feed their family there is something fundamentally wrong with that society but my book does not try to vilify the billionaires of the time they were called robber barons i mean they were called robber barons they was they were not uni- universally admired um but i do not try to vilify that the rich uh simply because they have ancestral wealth or exploitative wealth but i try to explain why they they did not feel compelled to pay a decent wage or a higher wage because they were unsure if their uh business would crash and banks crashed and their people lost their savings and 
businesses' loans were called in. So they really were living from day to day as much as the labor class was. Uh, it was just less visible. Um, but the the instability of the time uh, drove people to make decisions that were selfish. And I don't think that has really changed. Um, we still have people making very selfish decisions. Uh, and and we still allow our legal systems and our laws still allow billionaires to send um, rockets into space while they are refusing basic health insurance to their own workers. We allow this. So I think it's a novelist's job to point out where something is glaringly wrong and and show that not just in uh, you know, a preachy pontification um, monologue, but in real terms, what does it mean to live like that? And unless one can empathize, one one has no reason to take action. So I hope in my writing uh, to to make it real enough that readers can empathize. And thank you for that reading, Anna. That was a chapter that um, it was heartbreaking to write. It really did happen, and again. That is, uh, that's the reality, right? That that is what we have to try and defend against. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Um, the point about the the precarity of um, the income that people are making from from these businesses, and especially from uh, these new, for the time, new technologies like electricity, um, and that, of course, that the sense that even immense wealth can be a um, deceptive bubble um, that can burst and leave you penniless. That's that is also quite topical at the moment <laughs> with Sam Bankman-Fried um, and uh, the crypto collapses. Uh, yeah, and entire industries, of course, in, um, have gone under as a result because they were funded by that. And that's um, that. That's also a, a theme. That's also thematized within the book. Um, so yes, there's a there isn't a there's no sense here of um, or very little sense of kind of heroes and villains in general. Even though in this novel, in both the novels, you're uh, looking at in the first novel a murder, and in this novel, it's uh, it's a terrorist plot. Um, and nevertheless, there is a feeling of inevitability about many of the characters. Um, decisions and ways of acting, that these are the logical ways for them to be motivated to act given their, given their situation and circumstances. And I really liked that moral complexity about the book. Thank you so much. It's something that I struggled to try to, to be even handed about and to, to show, um, you know, one may have good intentions that end up horribly going horribly wrong uh, and so yeah that's that is very much part of uh, building a, a strong character driven plot um there is a lot of plot i do admit because there are so many things happening and so uh, that keeps the pace up that keeps the action going but i did have sections where it was not believable or credible to have Diana in those situations. So I had to have about 10 chapters uh, written in Jim's point of view. Those were, believe it or not, the easiest chapters to write. He is just such an easy character to write. 
um, he just he just speaks. He just speaks, and I just have to race to keep up <laughs> typing as fast as I can. Um, so they're short chapters, but uh, they raise the stakes because he's right in the middle of it. And I do have him discussing with Diana at one point. Um, she thinks he's gone over to the other side. So there's this horrible sense they may be on opposite sides of this battle. And then at one point, she's even questioning when she's utterly disillusioned with the her new home, uh, that uh, are these people worth saving? I mean, we're risking our lives here. I could lose the man I love. And is this really worth it? And I, I want it to be as shocking, as stark as possible there, because that is ultimately a, a question that immigrants do ask. Um, there is this progression you know when you come to this country everything is so wonderful and oh my god the air is clean you get water that you can drink in that tap and you know no one's beating you up or uh, you know uh, hurting you uh, depending upon where you come from you know what the norm is for your for your safety so there's this wonderful sense of oh my gosh this is paradise and then slowly the uh the sheen wears off when you realize that your name is enough to have your resume tossed. Just having a foreign name is enough. There are enough racist people who keep demanding, where are you from? Where are you from? Where are you from? Because they're saying, you're not from here. You're not from here. And there's enough people that want to other you and diminish you and uh, ignore when you speak. Uh, and then that erodes some of that beautiful um, gloss and happiness that you, and, and the opinion, the high regard that you have for these people who appear so civilized. And you realize, oh, they're just people after all. And so there's that huge disappointment in immigrants. And it comes early to some and late to others. And many go home. Many say, you know what, um, whatever horrible stuff is going on, uh, I have some resources. I have family there and I will return. And some do go back. And others cannot and are now um, further along in that trajectory. So in this one little book, I had Diana go through that entire um, up and down and then ultimately to come to a point of maturity where she realizes, yeah, things aren't great, but they can get better and that we have to be a part of making it better if that's what we want. If we want to make this our home this is the place we want, then we have to um, join the protests, whatever it is, you know, uh, sign petitions, uh, make donations, um, actively join political parties, do what you need to do to make this place better and better for all, not just better for the immigrants. So those, uh, those um, discussions with Jim, because he's 10 years older and has a little wider frame of mind, uh, he's a little bit more accepting of people, whereas Diana is much more judgmental. And um, coming from a privileged point of view, she feels uh, she has the authority to make those judgments. Uh, unusual, perhaps, in a Victorian myth, but she has a lot of opinions because of her privileged upbringing. So having that counterpoint for me was um, a nice way to point out the the passage, uh, her passage through that immigrant's journey. And ultimately, the book is a little bit about the value of immigrants. 
because that is such a contentious point of view in America today, I thought that I, I wanted to put two immigrants in the soup and see what happened. Um, do they, they have some clues that nobody else is going to care about, but they, putting things together, realize that there's an awful, horrible uh, tragedy coming. And, and, you know, are they going to be able to stop it uh, when no one will listen? Um, you know, she's considered black in some situations. People wanted her to go around the back of the hotel. And yet she is, uh, you know, English educated. She is privileged. She is, um, you know, a highly competent woman. So how do you get through all of that and uh, almost save them against, uh, you know, without their help? <laughs> so I had Diana go to Chicago in the middle of this mess and try to find Jim in the middle of a... Um, extremely crowded season and uh, you know have all of that happen with a number of characters that are working against her in a way so uh, a lot going on but it, 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 like I say there was a lot to say <laughs> yeah a lot of the book is about um, the nature of identity and um, and belonging which are two things which you I think quite rightly separate um and uh, this is something i firmly believe in where you are from is not the same question as where do you belong um you can belong in a culture very different from the culture in which you were born and grew up um you can in fact be happier and more comfortable in a completely different culture from the one you were born and grew up in I, I definitely feel that way personally since I spent my early years in, in Pakistan and I absolutely would not, would not feel that I belonged, uh, within, uh, Pakistani society. And it's, um, your characters, I think, have an, have a, Jim in particular has this quite, um, uh, it's always been difficult for society to know exactly how to characterize him. Because in many ways he looks European, but he is half Indian. Um, he's also an Anglo-Indian during the time of the Raj, um, i.e., he is he's both um, in the army. He's a uh, he was an army captain before he retires and becomes a detective, and um, but at the same time he can never have the same status as English men within the British army. His parentage is, uh, his father is unknown and he has the Brahmin surname Agni Hotri, but at the same time, he's of course, he's outside of, of any kind of formal caste system or, um, he doesn't slot into Indian society. And that's, um, when he, he seems to make a, he seems to make a virtue out of that lack of belonging because or, or if, um, not lack of belonging, out of that, the fact that he is so difficult to categorize. And you thematize this a little bit within the, within the plot, I think, in the way that he, taking inspiration from Sherlock Holmes, it becomes a master of disguise and um, is extremely good at passing in many different disguises. Even his wife, Diana, doesn't recognize him when he's in disguise. 
And he also, um, he's not even attached to his name. So when they, um, or when they move from India to Chicago, the name is at some point mispronounced and he just happily changes it from Agni Hotri to Otre or sometimes to Agni, uh, or sometimes to Otri. It, it seems to him irrelevant. He has a very strong sense of personal integrity above identity in the sense of being part of a caste, a tribe, a, a, a nation, a race, etc. Oh, that's so beautifully said. Thank you. I know that that is that is perfect. Yeah, this is where I think um, you know maturity really has to do with not needing so much from other people, but being okay and complete in oneself. And so, in the first book in Modern Old Bombay, he's not. He he is not complete in himself. He is. He knows he will be difficult. It will be difficult to find a wife. He's never had a girlfriend because he's a pariah to Indian society. You know, white people did not want um, Anglo-Indians around, and frankly, the Indians did not approve of the mixing of the races at all. So racism on both sides, nice, right? Good place to be in. And and yet he is a diligent, hardworking, uh, empathetic person. And he's done some things he thinks he's, he's messed up. He thinks he's done some horrible things. And uh, in a sense, he's looking for redemption, and that's how he comes across this family because they've had a tragedy, and he's trying to help them in a way to to regain some sense of his own self worth. And through that first book, Murder in Old Bombay, he comes to some sense of, um, with Diana's help, in fact, uh, recovering himself. And then that is stands him in good stead in the second book because now he is, in a way, complete in himself. There are still parts of um, aspects of him that he he worries about and that don't um, complete, that are not complete, and and that Diana is frantic about because she sees how they can be dangerous. Um, his need to fix things can sometimes put himself put him into terrible situations. And uh, there's that balance between caring for oneself and caring for our fellow man that he he has not quite uh, discovered that balance, or at least from Diana's point of view, he's not doing enough to care for himself. So she, of course, inserts herself and in, in demands that he, he do that, that he pay attention to his own family in a sense, you know, what about us, she asks. So there's there's that part of it. Um, but I did want to show the vast difference in ages. Um, Ten years at that, when you're you know, 22 versus 31, oh my gosh, there, that is a vast difference in age. But it also puts them, their power equation has changed. It puts them on a different uh, equilibrium. In the first book, she is so far above him as an aristocrat, an heiress, and of course belonging to this very wealthy Parsi family connected to everybody and everything. Um, so she is she's far above him. Uh, then by the second book, they are much more equal because they are both immigrants. She has essentially lost her connections and her wealth in many ways. Um, she's not going to get an inheritance, for example, because she has married outside the Parsi community, uh, which was true at the times. And then 
now he's a little bit ahead because he's had some training and he is integrated into society far better. She's been home and struggling to <laughs> learn to cook. And, and, and in a sense, she's a fish out of water because that was not her training. She was taught to run a household with, you know, 15 servants. Um, so she is struggling a little bit there as well, as, as well as not knowing how black people are treated. Because in Boston, there were probably a few, but there were none of her acquaintance. So she's making mistakes left and right. But that power equation has vastly changed. And she demands, through this book, she demands equality in, in um, decision-making, in taking steps that go outright against what Jim has told her to do. <laughs> and in a sense, even putting herself in danger because... She feels this is the only way to rescue him, to get out of this situation. Um, there's an invincibility of the young. Um, I, I, I am very disturbed when characters in books do uh, stupid things, to do outright, you know, dangerous, stupid things, um, because I, I just feel that that is so not credible and also encouraging the reader then to, to believe that such stuff, can, you can get away with it. No, you know, you, you, in real life, you don't. You, you do get hit by you know, cars and trucks and whatever uh, if you do crazy things. So, so no, let's not encourage readers to do dangerous things. But, but then when you have this looming disaster and an awareness and having seen a little bit of what it could be like in front of one's own eyes, oh, my gosh, there is a huge compelling reason now for her to do some things. And and then she always thinks she'll get away with it until until it becomes apparent that she's been seen, she's been noticed, and she's warned very clearly to you know stay away, do not get involved. So uh, all of this adds a lot of you know pressure and it raises the stakes, and uh, I think makes it quite a compelling read. Uh, so I didn't want to have a very uh, you know, lyrical or florid or flowery set of uh, interspersed uh, descriptions because of this pressure right from the get-go. When she gets this letter, she obtains a letter that has um, uh, a few words in it, chemicals that are explosives. And so we know right from the beginning that something very, very bad is likely to happen. And that doesn't lend itself well to then, you know, taking a walk in the park and enjoying the scenery. Mm -hmm. you know, that is is part of her experience. So <laughs> it was fun to write. Yeah, it's very, um, it forces the characters uh, to be unself-indulgent. Um, so all of the, all of the conversations, the thoughts, the feelings, they are in general, uh, almost exclusively extremely focused on getting the job at hand done. And I, I do see a maturing in the characters over the first, uh, novel in the sense that there is a dawning on, I think, Diana, the realization that maturity involves having faith in your own integrity and, and that not being dependent on how other people see you. That ha what other people describe you as, how they perceive you, um, you can't make your ego dependent on that. You can't make your kind of self-worth dependent on other people's opinions of you and trying to 
force them to acknowledge your your status in some way. You have to just go out and do the things and earn respect in that in that manner. I want to read a really short passage here, which is relevant, I think, to the identity stuff. This is Diana. <clears throat> Alone in bed, I thought of my ancestors who'd been driven from Persia, land of mountain prophets and desert oceans. They'd left their home, too. A thousand years ago, they sought refuge on the heat-seared coast of India. My devout papa was always so certain of what was right. He found his answers in our Zoroastrian religion and often spoke aloud to the thin white-bearded statue of our prophet, draped in a long robe, pleated in the sculptor's imagination with a curved collar. This prophet's hair was ridged with curls, his eyes deep-set. For all his snowy beard, he did not look old, or sad, or happy. His face peaceful, he pointed, gazing upward, one finger raised, looking more like a seeker of divine truth than one who has found it. An English professor once baited Papa, saying, If Zoroaster, the Persian prophet, was so wise, how is it there's so few of you left? Papa smiled. He spoke for all mankind. Are there so few humans left? Well, if your god, Ahura Mazda, were all-powerful, as he said, wouldn't you have conquered the Greeks, and the Arabs for that matter? Papa said, That one god, well, he looks after them too, Greeks and Arabs. But they slaughtered your ancestors and converted the rest to Islam. Yet here we are still, said Papa without rancor, and whatever their faith, the Persians lived on. I'm glad of it. That old prophet's truth is embedded into their faith and yours, whether its followers know it or not. After that, the professor said very little. With a puzzled expression, he watched Papa telling jokes and laughing his deep, booming laugh. I pitied the professor as he struggled to understand. Papa holds no grudge against anyone. We are all descended from someone, so my bloodline does not matter. I thought perhaps someday no one would care about such things. Growing up in India, the old things seeped into one's consciousness. Wells that flowed and fed generations rivers that soaked the sun into paddy fields, farmed for centuries in the same painstaking way. I'd climbed trees older than this young United States, and knelt in temples built before Christopher Columbus was weaned from his mother's breast. Lying in the dark, I longed to speak with Jim. Only he would understand this feeling inside me, half pride, half pain. He'd see right away why it wasn't arrogance, but a sense of being linked to generations before but Jim was locked into some deep game. Um, one of my favorite passages from the book, and I think more articulately than I was able to, um, expressing what I wanted to say about um, your concept of um, personal identity within within the book. Thank you. Another lovely, lovely reading. Oh, Ayana, you read so well. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, there are a few moments in the book in which you're able to bring the benefits of a modern sensibility to um, to the historical story. And although I've talked a lot about how much the novel reminds me of Victorian novels, um, of course, you broach some certain topics in a way that Victorian writers are generally unable to do. And I think one of my favorites of those touches were what you have to say about Diana and Jim's 
uh, sex life. Could you talk about that a little bit? <laughs> yeah. So in Murder in Bombay, we um, get a little bit of this idea from Adi. Um, the, his wife died a virgin, and that was medically confirmed. So there's this big question of why, you know, is he a homosexual? Is he uh, impotent? Whatever. But, but he explains it very simply. He says, we were very young. How she was 19 when we married, and Parsi reformers have been talking about, you know, women die in childbirth. This was very common in the 1800s, even early 1900s, where women had babies too young and died. A young wife dying in childbirth is almost a, a, a given in any Victorian, uh, you know, book, any book actually, um, before the maybe 1950s. Um, so, yes, there was an awareness amongst the educated class, classes that you women do die in childbirth, and, and it's because they're too young. And remember, the 1800s, way up into probably 1900, a girl was usually married by the time she was 15. Um, Annie Oakley, the famous um, uh, shot, who was actually at the World's Fair in the Buffalo Bills um, Wild West show, was married at 15, and she was considered a woman, not a girl. So it was common. But um, there was also this idea that, uh, you know, if, if the couple's in love, then they're going to postpone their actual consummation um, because they didn't want the wife to, to die, to, um, to die young. Uh, so Adi had waited, and so in this book, Diana, early on in the book, says something about um, she's not ready to be a mother. And I think it's just too much. Uh, she's left everything she knows, even though she has traveled in Europe and so on. America's completely different. She, they, they aren't as well off, so she's struggling a little bit with this idea that she actually has to look at the price of things, um, which which hadn't happened before because Papa was always buying things for her. She just had to point out what she wanted. Um, now she has to, you know, pinch pennies a little bit. And, and Jim is very thrifty. He won't buy a new coat. He buys a used coat. Um, and then she deplores it, but he, he's very clear about saving up for a house. So there's all this going on with so much newness, and therefore they aren't actually, um, you know, intimate until way towards the end, where Diana finally finds that she is has enough confidence in this new world and that they will be okay together um, to to dare to have a child. Uh, it's terrifying to her to to be responsible for somebody else. Um, uh, you know, to have a baby is in a very unfamiliar place is um, scary, other than the fact that her life may be at risk <laughs> but because dying in childbirth wasn't re restricted to teenagers. Um, younger women did die in childbirth. And, and sometimes women were having children well into their 40s and died then. So, it, you know, there is always a risk. Um, that, I think, I, I wanted to point out that um, today's books have a couple just looking at each other and then jumping into bed. In the movies, there's a look, they get together, it's just, you know, draw together, the camera pans in, there's a kiss, and then the clothes go flying. Okay, um, something's wrong when we demean sex in such a way uh, that the intimacy and the trust that the act uh, involves is so short-cutted um, to, you know, to assume that people will enjoy the sex act in such 
a truncated and horribly insignificant manner. Um, I, I wanted to bring back the Victorian manner of uh, treating, um, you know, the act of sex as being part of marriage, but also being very momentous because of the having of a child, because of the risk to the wife's life, which everybody today has forgotten when we, you know, got rid of Roe v. Wade. And now we want our teenagers to bear the children that their bodies are incapable of bearing. So we're already, U.S. is already very high on the maternal mortality. Um, we rank fifth, I think, in amongst the um, uh, you know, first world countries. Um, there's probably a few African countries that are better than us in maternal mortality. And what that means is that we allow our women to die, okay? And by getting rid of Roe v. Wade, we are allowing more young women to risk their lives. And that seems to be okay with us. We are so pro-baby that we are anti-women. Um, I have a clear bias uh, on this point. I think it is very, very obvious. My bias is towards the living. I care more about the living girl and her future life. And um, therefore, this does matter in terms of how do you put this point of view uh, across to other people? I think People forget. It is so easy to remember the rhetoric that people forget that somebody's life is uh, going to be impacted in, in a disastrous way. So Jim is so in love with Diana. He'll do whatever it takes to keep her alive and to keep her happy and to keep her safe. Uh, it drives him crazy when she does things that are dangerous because he'll sacrifice himself. He will not sacrifice her. And he makes that point. At some place, he says, my word, my bond means nothing. Like he could be sold for a dime if it, if it comes to down to, to her life. So, so yeah, he, you know, this idea of abstinence and whatnot that is uh, considered very old fashioned. Uh, it matters if the man cares a damn, it matters. Um, the girl's future and her life should matter. Otherwise, all he wants is a rump. And, um, you know, is utterly demeaning to women. So historical novels are about history and about the past, but they are very much about today. They are very much about what we are doing and the mistakes we are making and the horrible policies that we still have in, uh, in play today. And I don't think we should pull our punches. I think we should say the truth as we see it. And let people feel the truth in the book. And if they're incapable of empathizing, so be it. But here's a chance. Here is a chance to feel somebody else's life, to walk in their shoes, to feel the fear looming, to know the risks that they are experiencing. Um, because it could be your child, okay? It could be your granddaughter. It could be your sister. And so if you care even a little bit, Feel for the character. Uh, and and, and I, I think I demand that of readers to at least be engaged to that level that you can feel for a character. And you may not agree with what they do or don't do. In fact, in the third book, I have some very stark situations where I know that people will not agree. Um, but, but these are the choices that people in reality are up against. And so I have... Um, confronted, uh, even though this is a cozy, it is, um, you know, it's supposed to have no overt sex or violence, 
but I don't shy away from these things. I think you want to know what's happening in the couple's life. Part of my books, um, there are so many layers. There's always one mystery, you know, that is tied to the times, the, the world events. And there's a relationship situation that's going on because our lives don't stand still. Um, they continue to evolve. And I think you know, relationships are some of the biggest mysteries there are. <laughs> and then there's an internal compass, because as we come across different situations and different people in our lives, I think thoughtful individuals do question whether they need to adjust or even discard some of their beliefs. And so that you know is part of the uh, evolution of each book, which makes them quite hard to construct. <laughs> yes, I bet. Yeah, it's always, uh, I've always found it hard to um, reconcile um, when I'm reading historical fiction or, or watching a historical series on TV, the cavalier way in which um, characters often approach full-on penetrative sex um, okay, you could have sex without risk of getting pregnant by, you know, having oral sex or whatever. But the way they approach full-on intercourse, as if they were living in the present day in which um, you have access to contraception. Mm. Um, and in times when there was a serious risk of pregnancy, and pregnancy might have meant death, or it could have meant ostracization and disgrace mm -hmm. and banishment from society. And it, for me, sullies the characters of a lot of the men. And I like the fact that you, so Jim says that he, his, um, his colleagues in the army, uh, would visit brothels, but he never did because he himself was born, was an unwanted child, uh, wasn't, uh, not unwanted. Illiterate. Yes, unwanted, I guess, by his yeah. father, an accidental child, um, born to a single mother who was, um, disowned by her family as a result, and he grew up in an orphanage. And he doesn't want to feel that he might be the means of um, allowing other children to come into the world in that way, that he might also have a string of unknown um, children out there. And that seems to be a preoccupation that I, very few of the men in the historical novels have. And it's also a, a uh, it's a question that that novelists of the time just um, shy away from largely. Yes, so I, yes. I really enjoyed your, your treatment of that. Thank you. And there are a couple of other very modern issues or issues that you treat uh, that are, um, that have been around since the dawn of time. Well, the dawn of civilization, I think, but which you treat in a particularly modern way, despite the Victorian setting. There's one in particular I'm thinking of, but I don't want to talk about it because it's going to be a spoiler if I do. Um, yeah. And I think you might be able to guess, yeah. but yeah. Um, we'll leave that for the readers to discover. But um, uh, those little touches are um, really make you feel as though you're, uh, you have the benefit of the full immersion in the historical setting with, with a kind of, somewhat greater modern sophistication. And uh, yeah, I, I, I like that a lot. Thank you. Um, I know exactly what you mean. I'm so glad. Yeah, I think 
I think women, uh, Victorian women, were a little bit more assertive than you know most books give us to uh, believe. You have to remember that most books were written by men, um, and therefore, you know, uh, there are situations that they will invent or or um, describe that that won't wouldn't have or may not have had um, you know a full understanding of that as a woman. Um, you know, I um, I absolutely adore Vasim Khan's books. I his his droll sense of humor. I adore, um, and the fact that his main character Persis Vadia is a Zoroastrian Parsi woman. I just loved it. I felt seen in such a you know such a marvelous way. And so he's got three books out, and they are really good. The last one is Lost Man of Bombay. But here's the thing: uh, his his Detective versus ideas in nineteen fifties, okay, fifties before contraception, and yeah, she does have a sexual liaison, and and I, I'm sorry, that broke the bubble for me. That no, it is so unlike a woman at that era of that era um, to um, have an affair. Um, and and not consider the consequences. Okay, I'm sure people did have affairs. They've had affairs in every millennia. But to not consider the consequences? Okay, the bubble just burst. Because it is written by a man, that depth did not occur. The enormity of what he is saying did not occur. Um, but I think uh, in other ways, there's just just so much to like in the book that uh, Lost Man of Bombay then, you know, came to close to the top of my list. So so um, this is why I think it is good to read variety of readers, read uh, varieties of writers, read books by Indians, read books by African authors, wonderful books. Um, certainly American authors, there are just uh, so many to choose from and uh, some wonderful Canadian authors too. I mean, just every every continent puts out a very different kind of book and i think it is so um so wonderful to explore the different ways that people behave and and the norms and the attitudes in different places uh for me that is just icing on the cake i just love it um so tell us a little bit about your next book that that's already written i gather and it's out in autumn it is written, yes. It'll be out in summer. Um, they, they're telling me September or maybe fall, um, October of next year. Uh, it is uh, another... Of, twi- of, of 2023. Because I think this podcast will probably come out in January. So, okay, great. Um, yeah. <laughs> Wonderful. So the title has been finalized. It's called The Spanish Diplomat's Secret. Um, and it's basically got uh, our sleuths on a um, transatlantic liner uh, traveling from New York to Liverpool. And then, of course, there's a murder on board that could have global consequences. So Captain Jim has got to solve the mystery before the ship docks, which is they, they were about a week, uh, eight days uh, to reach Liverpool. Uh, the only problem is that, well, a couple of problems, but he's a lousy sailor. <laughs> and he's um, got seasickness. There's also a thousand people on board and no witnesses. And uh, luckily, he does have his secret weapon, of course, Diana, uh, who has taken a number of journeys on board before. 
Uh, she's a much better traveler, and she's also much better at figuring out the rules of polite society, which do rule in on a transatlantic liner. Uh, and then she helps him suss out the killer. Um, the, you know, of course, there are multiple people with multiple different motives to kill the Spanish diplomat. And uh, so they have to work through a lot of these things all within the space of, I think, eight or 10 days. So uh, you just mentioned earlier in the podcast that my first and second book have a very wide landscape. Deliberately, I have brought that um, the lens, narrowed the lens to a single ship. So it's a much smaller um um, width is much smaller this time. It's not as much of a landscape, but you just still do have very different characters, different classes, different motives, different uh, nationalities, uh, all going to Europe. And of course, um, there's all sorts of hidden agendas going on. So uh, this one's just completed. I just finished the revisions. And, uh, I think um, I'm looking forward to when they send me the cover. Macmillan does a wonderful job with my covers. So I'm just looking forward to that. Wonderful. I can't wait. So I highly recommend everybody go and read uh, Nev's novels. And I would, uh, um, you can read The Peril in the, at the Exposition separately from Murder in Old Bombay, if that takes your fancy. There's enough information within the novel itself. It's self-contained enough. But I would recommend starting with Murder in Old Bombay, which is an absolutely stunning novel. And, uh, yeah, her books combine a really um, uh, a kind of page-turning, old-fashioned, rompy murder mystery whodunit um, feel with this uh, lovely, clear attention to detail. So, can't I can't recommend them highly enough. And the audiobooks are fantastic. Um, you have just really beautiful readers for both the books. I agree. Uh, the first one has one number of awards for uh, Vic Adam, one number of awards for the um, audio book. He got the audio file award. The audio we actually didn't win, <laughs> but we were finalists with Stephen King and Barack Obama, who read his own wow. biography. <laughs> Just I had to say that um, Safina Inger. <laughs> <laughs> Sophia Inger wrote the sec- uh, re- read the second book, Diana's Part. She does a wonderful job as well. I would just suggest that uh, if you start with Murder in Old Bombay, which is definitely what I recommend as well, do know that there's a glossary at the end. Uh, there are a few Indian words. You can intuit what they are. You can figure out what they mean. But if you um, know that there's a glossary at the back, um, you know, it takes out some of the puzzlement or confusion that you might feel. So just know that there's a glossary. In hindsight, I wish I would have insisted that the glossary go in the front. Um, Too late, but I do alert people that there is a glossary. Great. Thank you. And Nef, do you have any advice for budding? I I know that you you teach writing, but do you have any kind of brief advice for budding writers that you'd like to give before we we close? The famous uh, words from Stephen King are, read a lot, write a lot. Uh, and I, I think there's, it's hard to do better than that. For me, it's read a variety. Don't just read your genre. Read a variety of um, books. Uh, read fiction, nonfiction, you know, mix it up. I alternate. 
I quite deliberately alternate classic books with modern books uh, and then nonfiction as well. Sometimes it's for research, sometimes it's just something that I liked. Um, I just read the biography of a member of parliament, UK member of parliament, Jerbanu Gifford, and it's a short little book and just so delightful and so inspiring for young women to read. Um, I want to recommend the biography of German Zerbanu Gifford, um, who, who is herself a marvelous, just riveting person. Um, so mix it up. If you're a writer, read continuously, but mix it up. Uh, I stop reading when I'm in the drafting phase, and that is because the images in my books grow in my brain while I'm not writing. Uh, I don't want to put new images in there from reading somebody else's book. So the three months or four that it takes to draft the novel, I just stop reading at that point. I'm only reading nonfiction or research at that point. But the moment that ends, uh, I take a nice big break from the book. Uh, Stephen King recommends six weeks. Uh, For me, four weeks is usually enough, six weeks if I can get it. Um, That gives me enough space to see the piece afresh. I get an early reader to look through it. I've had a wonderful early reader, Jay Langley, God bless him, uh, who gives me honest, absolutely um, honest feedback. And then I get into revisions and edits, uh, which are painful, frankly. Revisions are always painful. I've not found any quick way to do it or easy way to do it. But I do everything in Excel, so I record every uh, change that needs to be made. And it doesn't have to be detailed. It can be just a brief thing. But uh, by doing that, my brain is um, a little bit relaxed to, because it doesn't have to hold on to all those things. And therefore, new images can come. Um, I think using your brain space and recognizing that um, putting down things on lists releases up brain space and releases up tension within your thinking. Um, I think that is something that most writers, um, you know, experienced writers will appreciate. But young writers want to do everything in their head. And therefore, their head is so crowded, it's painful. Um, Give your head a break. Give your brain a break. Write things down. Takes it off your immediate frontal lobe and then relax and the images will come. Uh, And I wish writers the very best because there's so much joy in it that for me there's just so much joy in this process that i i i wish i could distill it and give it to everybody (laughs) thank you nev i'm going to finish actually by reading another little passage and uh um here we go i think it serves as a nice comment on um a comment and a kind of meta comment on the way you structure novels and and I think what is the, the kind of, the, I guess, the central theme of Peril at the Exposition. This is Diana. This was his cause. He had loved India, loved it still, but it was no longer his home. He'd put his hopes for the future into this land, this precarious world of contradictions, of high society and desperate poverty, much like India, and yet not, for it was so young. Here, people walked with heads held high. Urchins and lift boys read newspapers and talked about the nation's affairs. Jim put such stock in them. I prayed that they'd never disappoint him. Jim stared at me, throat working. 
He spoke in a whisper. God, I want to be him. Who? I caught his startled look. He had not meant to speak aloud. Who, Jim? He ducked his head. The man you see when you look at me. Stunned, I said. But you are him. The finest man I know. His breath was shallow as he eyed me. I want to deserve that. To earn it. Not from trust or innocence or your romantic notions. But because it is mine. He needed to prove this to himself. I groaned at the paradox. To prove himself, he might pay an awful price. Um, so just a little taster for readers. Um, now, go read the novel. And thank you so much for joining me, Nev. Thank you, Anna. What a marvelous job you do. I just want to say that. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. <laughs> you too. <laughs> um, have a wonderful week, everyone. You have been listening to Two for Tea, a podcast hosted by me, Iona Italia, and produced in association with Ario Magazine, with the assistance of sound engineer Justin Ward. Show notes are provided by Daniel Sharp. If you enjoyed this episode, share it widely, leave a review on your favorite podcast app, and please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash ario, A-R-E-O, or patreon.com slash two for tea. Have a wonderful week. <laughs>